morning. Good to see you all. My name is Henry Michael. I'm the uh, family and youth pastor. And uh, so I'm glad I get to share with you guys today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. So NIV, if you want to open that up uh, as we get started, we'll be in the second half of Matthew uh, chapter 2. The most chaotic thing I think I've ever experience, just prolonged chaos is, is moving. If you've ever moved, especially from one state to another, or uh, as we were talking with someone last night, uh, moving into a house that's not really ready to live in yet, it's a very chaotic time, especially with little kids uh, running around. When Holly and I moved here, we moved from Kentucky to Minnesota. Uh, and this is what Kentucky is in Holly's mind. It's horses, <laughs> rolling hills. It's kind of perfect, right? Um, and it's got Southern hospita- hospitality, we've got uh, Southern accents, that's, that's Kentucky in her mind, it's this wonderful, idyllic place. Um, when she uh, was trying to think, okay, we're going to move to Minnesota, she's been to Minnesota a few times, but living there is different than visiting, and this is her Minnesota vision in her head. Um, polar bears, uh, hot dish, weird accents, and she said multiple times, it's just a little too close to Canada. Now, we were moving from Kentucky, and this is, again, like, I lived there for eight years. It was home for me, too, and um, we loved it. We lived in our first house. We moved from our first house that we had together. It's where we brought home Navy, our first child. It was, had a lot of memories to it, and we loved it. But there was one thing that Holly hated about that house, and it was uh, something that was in our backyard, we had these backyard neighbors who had dogs that lived outside, and they would just dump food everywhere uh, for these dogs. And these dogs weren't the only ones who were being well-fed, uh, or the only animals being well-fed. We met one of those animals for the first time during, a, it was probably a kid's birthday party in our backyard, and one of these well-fed animals ran right through the middle of our party and into the, uh, a crack on our outdoor steps. It was a giant rat. Now, being the man of the house, I did my part. Um, I, I tried to eradicate these rats with a pellet gun. And so it became a uh, pastime for me, a favorite pastime of me, of me, some of my friends, we'd get our pellet guns. I got a picture of it right here of a couple of my friends. We cornered them. Um, we would get these, and we looked silly, but we felt awesome. And we would kill rats uh, with headlamps at night. It was great. Um, Holly, for her part... Um, she started studying up on rats and looking up rat facts to see what she was up against. And if, you're, if you have rats in or around your house, and if you're maybe scared of rats, don't look up rat facts. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of them here just to show you how horrifying it is. Um, rats eat their own dead, which is gross. Um, I, we shot one one night. It was in the corner of our yard turned off our lamps, you know, we're waiting, talking, you know, and then we turn it on, and I see another rat dragging that rat underneath the the fence to eat it. It was horrible. Um, They can dislocate their entire bodies to fit into almost any size crack. Uh, They can climb through your plumbing. So going to the bathroom in the middle of the night, knowing that there are rats in your backyard is a horrifying experience. (laughs) Um... Now, I, I shot some rats, and I felt good about myself, and then you see that they have up to 20 babies at a time. So, 
I wasn't doing much uh, to help that situation. Those are the ones I can't get out of my brain. There are plenty more rat facts that you can look up on your own uh, this afternoon. Um, but I remember the first time, or the time I got a call that we were getting the job in Kentucky. I went to hang out at a friend's house, and I get a frantic call. It's they're everywhere. They're sitting. They're just sitting as if they own the place in our backyard, eating food. Rats had taken over our entire backyard. Now Holly will say this to this day. We, it wasn't that moving was easy, but if she needed guidance and she needed help from maybe on high, she had it. She had it in rats. And although it didn't fix a difficult situation with our move, it definitely helped. Now, Matthew 1 and 2, we see that uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus go through a series of chaotic moves just like ours. Well, probably more chaotic than ours. Um, They had to travel to give birth. That's a, a chaotic thing in and of itself. They didn't have a Pinterest-worthy nursery to bring Jesus home to. Uh, in fact, they didn't have a home at all to return to. They didn't have doctors and nurses to wake them up in the middle of the night while they were trying to get some rest uh, to check vitals. Joseph probably had to deliver the baby. And although, uh, despite an angel coming for Joseph and saying like, hey, you're going to have a baby and it's this crazy situation, I don't think it helped prepare him for what it would look like to give birth in a barn and uh, have, have to be homeless for a few years and, and, and have a toddler for the first time. And I don't know how long they were in that barn or if they ended up renting out an apartment or something shortly after they gave birth, but according to our text today, they could have been in Bethlehem for up to two years up to two years away from from their home. So when we read the Christmas story, we need to read the fact that Mary and Joseph were normal human beings who faced chaos and fears and uncertainty just like us. But as we're going to read through our passage today, we see God's hand and his protection all over their lives and their situations to bring peace and glory, not just for them, but for the whole world. And so before we jump into our passage, let's pray together that the Holy Spirit can illuminate our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to be in uh, Matthew verses 13 through 23, and we're going to hear it from a couple of our five ochres. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23, NIV. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance to the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. 
After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So within these 10 verses, uh, it spans a number of years. I don't know how many uh, years there are, but within those years, you see a lot of chaos. You see a lot of uncertainty. And although we have a desire for our Christmases to be full of joy and peace and memories, many of our circumstances in this room or of people in our family are anything but joyful and peaceful. So we need to find peace in this Christmas season despite the chaos that might be going on in your life, despite the hardship going on in your life. And so we're going to look at two distinguishing aspects from this story. And the first aspect that we have to bring peace in this season is that we have peace through God's guidance. God's guidance is one of those things that maybe you've grown up in the church hearing, but it might be one of the most confusing, frustrating, and misunderstood aspects of the Christian faith. Usually God's guidance is not a big deal to us um, unless there's a big decision to make. If we are comfortable, if we have the job that we want, maybe the house that we want, the location, the kids, the the spouse, whatever it is, God's guidance can often fall in the background. But when something changes, a new reality confronts us, maybe we experience some suffering, maybe we're no longer satisfied in our homes and our jobs and our location. We want, like Mary and Joseph, an angel to come down and miraculously tell us what to do next to give us direction. We want God to act now. We've kind of adopted our culture's uh, uh, view and and reaction to uncertainty. Uh, In the book, uh, Reflective Poverty, or uh, sorry, After Doubt, A.J. Swoboda talks about this concept called reflective poverty. And he describes it this way. He says, what took years of deep, Arduous thought and prayer in the past is replaced with the easy, the succinct, the tweetable. A lifetime of painstaking effort at reflection, risk, and error is replaced by a TED Talk. And the modern expert is the one who read an article about something once. What took, yet even in those rare moments that ultimate questions of meaning do make it into the public stage. They're undertaken with speed, efficiency, and economics in mind. Money, sex, and religion can be discussed so long as they cast the widest nets possible, the risk of offense driving us to the lowest common denominator. Reflection requires patience. It requires uh, perspective and discomfort. And not just our culture, we as Christians, we've cut it out altogether for the lowest common denominator because we think as long as we have some sort of an answer, we can just move on to the next thing. We're not 
confronting the oftentimes painful and uncomfortable practice of reflection. It'd be easier if an angel just told us what to do. We want to, our directions in our lives, me, myself too, I want it to be easily discernible. We want to find love, we want to find community, we want to make money, we want to have the good life now, we don't want it later. In the first few chapters of Matthew, we see multiple angelic visits that help guide the Magi, help guide Joseph. And because years are covered up in these uh, first two chapters, I think maybe we think, oh, because an angel visited Mary and Joseph and these Magi and all these crazy things happened, it must have been easier for them to go through uh, the chaos that was the first couple of years of their marriage. Because you see in chapter one, an angel comes to Joseph. He's saying that his fiance is going to conceive of a baby by the Holy Spirit, okay? That's a really wild thing to say. Can you imagine telling your family and your friends, yeah, an angel visited me and uh, Mary's pregnant. I didn't do anything. It's going to take a lot of explanation. I don't think an angel helped in that situation. Joseph must have been asking on that long walk to Bethlehem, was that an angel or was that indigestion? Because Mary's pregnant, they had to travel on a donkey to give birth in a barn. It's like the most unideal situation that you can possibly think of. The questions in their minds, could the son of God really come through them? They know the history of the mistakes they've made, maybe the lack of faith, the the imperfection that were Mary and Joseph, could he really be born through them as a baby in such humble circumstances? There must have been so many doubts and questions and uncertainty as they were going through all of these things despite the fact that they had angelic visitors. I can almost hear the sigh of relief though when the shepherds bust down the door and worship the king, and maybe that knowing look as they looked at each other when the magi came in, because they were giving gifts to a king. They'd been looking their whole lives for this very moment. This must have been a confirming event for them, but then we see later that an angel tells them in the middle of the night to run to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill them, kill their baby. More walking, more waiting, year after year away from home, And when they are able to go home, an angel says, hey, don't go back to where you want to go. Go to this backward town because Herod's son is just as crazy as his dad. And the question that they had to be asking, is all of this worth it? And so when we look at it that way, we think, okay, angelic visitors may not have totally fixed the situation here. Why do we think that God's guidance needs to be instantaneous, quick for us? Why do we shortcut the waiting that God often puts us through for short-term comfort? What if God's guidance brings us from a place of discomfort to another place of discomfort? It's why uh, James says in James 1, 2 through 4, he says, consider it a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking everything, anything. God is in discomfort. Discomfort is not a sign that things are, are out of control in God's, mind, in God's mind. God does not waste discomfort. Because God is leading you to a new place of discomfort, he's always also leading you to a deeper relationship with him, a deeper dependence on him. So will that be enough for you? Obviously, discomfort is hard. No one wants discomfort for discomfort's sake. But many of us don't recognize how God can use that discomfort to grow deeper in him. I think many of us, when we face discomfort, we um, have adopted what the culture does and we, tr- we try to uh, manifest a better future. If we just think about it and we, we believe hard enough, then maybe it'll happen. What manifesting is doing is we're trying to say that we have a better imagination of the good life than what God may have for us. We all desire an angelic visit. We want that God-ordained finger point in our Bibles to get that magic verse that's going to tell us what to do, that story that, that fits our situation right now. We want the voice of God to make our paths clear and the chaos to go away. But really, we just want the supernatural without the relationship. And that's what reflective poverty is. Reflective poverty is wanting quick answers at the expense of being changed into the image of his son. It shortcuts the good life God has for us for momentary happiness. God wants and is concerned with a relationship with us. And so we have to be okay that maybe his gifts come on his timing and his process and not our own. So do you want God to define your life or do you want this vision, your vision of the good life with God on the side? Instead of expecting moments for God to guide us in our timing, what if God's guidance comes by committing somewhere? And I'm talking about the long, hard work of vulnerability, of time and effort it takes to be in community, reading scripture and in prayer, because scripture and reading it and understanding it can be really, really hard. Prayer and trying to keep your mind focused and actually have a moment where you're connecting with God, it can be really, really hard. Community, making friendships, deepening can be, can be hard because people can be annoying, my small group, guys, were talking trash about the Vikings game at halftime yesterday. They were annoying. Because they're all Packers fans and there was a Colts fan in there, so got to pick your group well. <laughs> but just because these things are hard and they take time and effort, um, it doesn't mean it's not worth it. It's worth it to learn how to read God's word. It's worth it to practice prayer through the distracting things that are going on around you. It's worth it to get into a group with a a bunch of messy people. And although it would be great if there was a magic pill that would help us uh, discern God's will quicker and and to understand how he wants to use us, um, that's not really how God works. And so he's instituted things in our lives and in our churches to push us towards understanding his will. And that takes time and it's a process. Should we take the story of God? Absolutely. You should take the story of God to help understand and read your Bibles. But that's just 
the first step. It takes a lifetime of reading and trying to understand how God writes and how God can speak to you through his word to really understand how to read scripture and you're never gonna get done with it. It takes time, it takes effort, and it's hard sometimes, but it's worth it. Should you read a book on prayer? Should you pray with your small group? Should you pray with your spouse? You absolutely should, but it takes time for your eyes to be open to see the world as God sees it. It takes time to really discern God's voice as he speaks to you in those times of prayer. It takes time to get through uh, constantly going to maybe your grocery list instead of praying for your friends and seeing those small moments of, of God working in your life. Should you join a small group, men's or women's ministry, youth group, you definitely should. But sometimes you have to go through the learning experience and time of being with people maybe you didn't choose the hard times of bearing one another's burdens and serving one another and being served. Purposeful, patient gathering, Bible study and prayer, it fights against this idea of reflective poverty and it opens the opportunity for you to find peace. Maybe not in your situation, maybe not right then and there, but it's opening you to be guided by God to find peace. Patience and reflection, it doesn't always make the uncomfortable go away or chaotic situations better. But God's guidance, there's a bigger thing going on there. There's something more that we can hold on to. And the second aspect that we see in the story that brings us peace in this Christmas season is that we have peace through God's plan. And so whether God's bringing you to a place of comfort or discomfort, our, our feelings have nothing to do with the legitimacy of God's guidance. Mary had to trust Joseph that escaping to Egypt was the best thing for their family. That must have been a hard decision, moving and moving and moving, that this decision meant going from a place that wasn't their home to another place that wasn't their home. Maybe there was a bit of regret that they weren't helping the other families because they knew something about Herod and his plan to kill babies. Maybe they felt bad that they didn't do something more and that they just escaped in the middle of the night. Our situations and our time, they may be different right now, but I also understand that all, there are people in our church that are, are going through some really, really hard times and you're holding on and you're trying to be patient as God guides you, but you're asking the question, where's God's guidance leading me? Does he care enough about me to have a plan for my suffering? How much more tragedy and discomfort can I take? When will it end? You know, many of us are asking that question. This Christmas story is a story of hope and peace. But I hope you're seeing that hope and peace don't necessarily mean comfort. And that can only make sense through the person and work of Jesus Christ. On the surface, this first Christmas, it looks chaotic, it looks scary, but if you look beneath the surface, um, you can see that the whole Bible is leading up to this moment. That true and lasting peace is a bit layered in here, because Mary and Joseph's story, it doesn't end with, and then they went home and they lived happily ever after, because they needed something a little bit deeper and a little bit more um, robust to hold on to. 
They had to hold on to a grander plan that they, and to an extension us, must hold on to to find peace. And what we see here is that God's story is weaved through this passage. It's something called uh, prophetic typology. Okay, that's the fancy word that you can uh, impress people at Christmas parties this year with. Prophetic typology is this idea, and, and you'll see it once we go through here in a minute, is this idea that uh, God's p- placed anticipations of Christ in the laws, events, and people of the Old Testament. So we look at stories in the Old Testament, and it's pointing towards how Jesus is going to be better. And so Matthew uses Old Testament stories and Old Testament prophetic visions all throughout here to show the story of Jesus, and he's foreshadowing his story. If you look at your uh, Bibles, if you look at verse 15, Uh, We see this prophetic language. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. And what this would have done for early readers, and it should do for us as well, it's going to transport us to the exile event, or the, sorry, the the exodus event. He's quoting Hosea 11.1. It says in Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He's pointing to one of the most important stories in Israel's history, that God saved them out of an impossible situation, out of slavery, all by his mighty work and his mighty hand, and brought them into a land that was their own. Or if you read verse 18, we read how Rachel, the wife of Jacob, Jacob, who is later named Israel, foreshadowing, It says, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. He's quoting Jeremiah 31.5, and this would have transported them to the Babylonian exile when it looked like everything was finished, that God could not use them anymore, that their sins were too great, but we would see later that God would resurrect his people because he wasn't done with them yet, because Jesus was coming. Or in verse 23, so was fulfilled that was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And this wasn't a quote from the Old Testament, but most scholars agree that he's using the uh, Hebrew language in a way that's showing that God can use anybody. Not only can he, he does use the weakest, the, the, the most humble, the ones that nobody expects. And so what we see here is this design pattern, this prophetic typology is preaching the gospel all the way through this passage. It's looking ahead at Jesus' life and it's pointing to hope and peace for all of our situations. Israel, as God's son, was created in an amazing way, something that only God could do just as he created Israel, his people, and he saved them from slavery. Both were made real and a people and a person through God's mighty hand, only something he can do. But they also um, experience an exile or death. Yet they were resurrected again. Jesus did all of these things, but better. Jesus is the better Israel. He's the better Moses. He's the better everything. He's what the scriptures were talking about. Matthew is showing us that the whole story of God is about 
Jesus. He's not a mere historical figure or a baby in a manger. Matthew's introducing us to the king of the universe. The only solution to chaos, fear, and sin, and death that we meet every day. This king of the universe brings peace in this Christmas season. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, um, pretty much encapsulating this idea. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, being humbled He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when the king of the universe entered our chaotic reality, he didn't come in to give himself a leg up. He wasn't flashy. He didn't use his godness to to make himself over every single person. Instead, he grew in wisdom and in stature, living in virtual obscurity most of his life. Jesus was sinless, and he pleased God, and he accomplished something that Israel or us, we could not accomplish on our own. And in his patience and humility and relationship with God, it didn't lead to riches and comfort or anything that maybe a five-step process we would try to do. No one said it led to death on a cross. And that death meant that um, it wasn't a mistake. He didn't die merely as a martyr. He took the power of sin and death, killing it on the cross. So that he could be glorified, where every knee could bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, because he rose from the dead. That's the hope that we had have. He rose from the dead, but guess what stayed dead? Your sin and your death. And that's the hope that you have if you are in Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. And if your sin and your death stayed dead, that means that pain, confusion, and chaos. It no longer has power over you. It's not evidence that God can't work through you or that he's not guiding you or or that he doesn't have a plan for your life. Instead, it's an invitation to draw closer to him. As we saw earlier, A.J. Soboda encourages us in uncomfortable moments to draw deeper into community, deeper into prayer, deeper into uh, reading your Bibles. And he says this because it's the only way to find hope and peace is to go into the things that God has given us and, and to draw closer to him. We're not going to find brand new ways of drawing closer to him. In these uncomfortable moments, he encourages us, don't substitute the weekly gathering for a podcast. Don't substitute weekly communion for a podcast. It may feel really good to do whatever you want and to treat yourself every once in a while. And he's saying, show up. Whether it's small group, whether it's church. He says, order your pizzas, your books, and your music online, but don't take your deepest doubts and questions there. Bring them to the people of God. Bring them to God in prayer. 
people who are living with you, people who understand you, people who know the good and the bad about you and love you anyways. I want to help you pursue God's will in your life. He's saying give community, give the Bible, give prayer a chance through the, through the darkness of life. And in that, we can start together that long, beautiful journey and peace of knowing God through his guidance and his plan. So each week we gather, we take communion. And communion is important because we take it together. And we look back to what Jesus has done so that we can look in the future at what he's going to do and the promises that he has for us. That on the cross, we eat of the bread, remembering that his body was broken for us. Take and eat. And that his blood was shed for us. So that we can have life in him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you just for the opportunity to know you and to be guided by you through your word, through your community, and through prayer, Lord. It's, it's a privilege to be able to connect with you, Lord. I pray as we uh, jump into our chaotic weeks, um, the doubts, the questions, the, the suffering that many of us are facing, Lord, I pray that um, we draw near to how you've given us ways to know you and to experience you pray that we don't run away from community, run away from prayer, run away from scripture, that we draw close, even when it's not comfortable. And just pray for the rest of our service as we respond, that we connect uh, with you, maybe even for the first time. I pray for anyone who does not have this relationship with you, Lord, to draw closer to you this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen.